0: So our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, 1 Samuel 18 and then also from 1 Samuel chapter 24. We are in a series where we're chronicling uh, the uh, the rise of David, King David, this, this great figure in the Old Testament to his throne. But we're really thinking about the way that God is present with his people uh, in David's reign and rule. And there are these places where David really shines. Uh, you know, he's a pretty remarkable person character all the way through, but there are, there are a few places where he just, he's really, really brilliant in the way that he shines uh, through the text. And this is one of them in the way that we see him interacting with Saul, the king who he has been destined by God to supplant, and yet as he waits for uh, Saul's throne to come to an end, uh, Saul with such hatred and vitriol toward David, and yet his ability Uh, not to give in to that same hatred, but to love instead. So look at David loving this enemy, Saul. Um, It's a really neat thing. Let's read. Uh, Beginning in chapter 18, you can follow along in your worship folder if you want to. It's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it should be on your screen. Uh, Or you can follow in your Bible. We're going to read chapter 18, verses 6 through 12, and then go to chapter 24. It's a long reading, but you really, we have to read the whole thing because it's a beautiful story. Okay, so bear with the long reading this morning. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that is Goliath, if you remember that scene, the, woman, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now skipping to chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you and do good for and do excuse me so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day and now behold I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house and David swore this to Saul and then Saul went home but David and his mighty men went up to the stronghold what an amazing story It's the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you have anybody in your life that you would describe as an enemy? Anybody in your life that you would describe as an enemy? And then my second question is, my follow-up question is, how does your faith shape the way that you relate to that person? In Jonathan, we saw last week, David had a true friend. And Jonathan loved him, and he loved Jonathan as his own soul. But in Saul, David had an enemy. But David loved Saul too. He didn't just love his friend Jonathan, he loved his enemy Saul, and he loved him quite remarkably. And that is something for us to stop and ponder and give consideration to. Enemy love is a hallmark of Christian ethics. Enemy love. Matthew five forty three, Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies so enemy love is a hallmark of christian ethics now that's hard but it's made even harder by the way that we tend to absolutize that word enemy dividing our world up in, in the people into categories of good and bad or good and evil when in fact as alexander schultzenitz famously wrote Actually, the dividing line between good and evil doesn't pass through groups of people. It doesn't pass through nation states or classes or political parties. It passes through every human heart, which means that no one is only good or only evil. We all have an incredible capacity for both moment to moment, and that means that the word enemy cannot be written with permanent marker. For one thing, because you never know how God's gonna work in somebody's life. But also because we tend to pass in and out of our best and worst selves all the time. And so we might call Saul an on-again, off-again enemy. Do you see the title of the sermon? How to love or loving an on-again, off-again enemy? Saul was an on-again, off-again enemy. One minute he's trying to pin David to the wall, with his spear. The next, he's putting him in charge of the army. Even here in this text, he goes out with 3,000 chosen men, verse 2 of chapter 24, to kill David, to hunt in him and kill him. But by the end, he's expressing his, his remorse and referring to David as his son, verse 16. It's, it's a really, you probably look at it and say, boy, that's a really unhealthy relationship. And it is, because Saul was a really emotionally unhealthy person. David, on the other hand, was not. But what I want you to see is how this broadens the category of enemy in a helpful way. Enemy does not describe a person. It's better to see the word enemy as describing the way that any person in your life is treating you at the moment. Paul Miller introduced me to this idea of a temporary enemy or an on-again, off-again enemy. And so a friend can become a temporary enemy. And so can a spouse, Or a child, uh, what makes them an enemy is that for whatever reason, and there are lots of reasons, but for whatever reason, in the dynamics of that relationship, they begin to interpret everything you do and say through a negative grid. They just set themselves against you so much so that when you talk, even if you're saying nice things, they interpret those things as. Ugly things. Even if you're loving them, they interpret it as you being against them. No matter how well-intentioned you are, they arrive at a negative conclusion about you. They've made up their mind about you. They've settled into hard-heartedness and resentment towards you. They don't see that mix of good and bad in you. You have become a person who is only bad in their eyes. Now, for our purposes, that's an enemy. Someone who assumes the worst about you. Because their opinion of you has become distorted and they perpetuate hostility in their own heart towards you. So look at verse 9 in chapter 24, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? That wasn't true. There, it could not be further from the truth. David has gone out of his way time and time again to do good to Saul, to love Saul, to actually extend Saul's kingdom. But Saul interpreted everything David did through a negative grid. And so David had an enemy. Let me ask you again, do you have somebody in your life that you would describe in that same way as an enemy? And how does your faith shape the way that you relate to them? That's what this text is about. And I want you to see, as we walk along these three things, I want you to see the making of an enemy. We're going to see how it is that enemies can actually be made. Secondly, I want you to see the unmaking of an enemy, the kind of love that we can show to one another that, that unmakes this enemy, enemy relationship. And then third, ultimately, we want this text to take us to see the remaking of God's enemies. So the, unmaking, the making of an enemy and the unmaking of an enemy and the remaking of God's enemies, the soul-destroying sin. Do you see that in your outline? The soul-destroying sin, the coal-heaping love, And an enemy loving God. That's what we want to look at in this text. But before we do, two caveats that I think are very important. And it's because you can't say everything in a sermon, and I'm already not saying uh, so much that I want to. But I think these two things are important. So as we get started, let let me just offer these two restraints to us as we talk about these things. First, as we talk about enemy love, let's resist the temptation to apply this to geopolitical events like war or what's happening in Palestine or any of those kinds of things. Let's let's do, do all we can to apply it interpersonally because that is the clear focus of this text. That word in chapter 24, verse 17, where Saul says, you are more righteous than I, it refers to integrity between two people. So this is person to person, okay? That's very important. Person to person. It's a diversion. It's actually a diversion to apply enemy love to a political war happening halfway across the world and not to the people who are right in front of us in our everyday life. C.S. Lewis warned about that in Screwtape, that that's a strategy of evil, to get us to just love generally and fail to love the people that we live with. Okay? But let's, the let, second restraint, let's resist the temptation to object on the front end of this because of concerns about enabling or even abusive relationships. And so let me just qualify that too. Loving an enemy does not mean that you dismiss the evil that they're responsible for. You don't let them keep on sinning against you. You don't have to stay with someone who is out to hurt you. In fact, it's not a good idea for you to do that. Jesus, you know, you don't stay in an abusive relationship because Jesus said, love your enemy. Notice how the scene ends at the very last verse Of chapter 24 it's it ends and it says Saul went home but David didn't go home with Saul where David go he went to the stronghold why why do you think David was under no illusion that Saul was gonna change he didn't he wasn't naive enough to think oh whoo okay I finally have a friend in Saul he knew that he still had an enemy and he was readying himself for the next battle so let's be careful. It's very important that we know how we should apply these things. But with those two restraints, okay, in the back of our mind, let's let's do our best to walk through this text. And first by seeing the making, the making of an enemy. So, why did Saul interpret everything that David did through a negative grid? If that's the way we're defining an enemy, somebody who interprets everything that you do and say, they just they just are convinced that you're a really bad person and they see it negatively. Why did Saul do that with David? Well, there are lots of reasons that it happens in relationships. It can be a accumulation of hurt or trauma from past experiences that trigger a misinterpretation of somebody's Intentions, it's a very complex issue, but this text points to one specific cause, and because the text takes us there, we need to go there. There is a a, um, specific soul-destroying sin that is highlighted here that often explains the making of an enemy, and it is the sin of envy. It's one of the seven deadly sins. Saul was jealous of David. He was jealous of David's success He was jealous of david's youth he was jealous of david's calling and his future and the way he was loved by the people if you look back in chapter 18 at verse 6 when david defeated goliath the women began to sing and the song they sang went like this saul has slain and struck down his thousands and david his ten thousands they were singing the song to saul they were singing the song in honor of saul but in the song, they gave greater honor, at least in Saul's eyes, to David. They, they, they sang about Saul's thousands, but David's ten thousands. And it says in verse 8, Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And then in verse 9, that he began to eye David from that day on. See, Saul was wounded by their honoring of David. Somehow, their ascribing that glory to David caused him to feel rejected and threatened. David's success made him terribly unhappy, and so he began to eye David and view him suspiciously, which led ultimately to the events of chapter 24 and the manhunt you see there, okay? Envy. According to Aristotle, envy is pain caused by another's happiness or success. Or to rephrase a biblical text, it is weeping when others are rejoicing and rejoicing when they are weeping. Envy is a sin that causes you to not be able to celebrate the success of others, but you have to grieve it instead because it's theirs and not yours. And the pain is so great that not only can you not enter into the joy that someone else is having, but either internally or actually actually in your life, you begin to actively try to sabotage their happiness. Greed. Greed wants what someone else has. Envy seeks it to take it away and have it for itself. Because that's the only thing that would lessen the pain, the rejection, you know, the fear. It is the fruit of pride, which is competitive and views life as a zero-sum game. The world is not big enough for my happiness and yours. That's what envy says. My happiness must come at your expense, if you are happy, then I am unhappy. For me to be happy, you must be unhappy. Isn't that gross? Isn't that evil? In fact, in the text it says, the very next day after Saul kind of gave in to this settled feeling of envy, it says that a harmful spirit rushed on, God, rushed on Saul from God and he began to rave. Now I know, what in the world does that mean? I'm gonna be thoroughly unsatisfactory in saying I have no idea But here's what I would would say to you, Saul's envy of David drove him mad. And it can do that. Envy leads to spiritual slavery. That's where it leads. But we also learn where it originates. In verse 12 of chapter 18. Look there, it's really helpful, I think. It says, Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but it had departed from Saul. Now we'll make our way back to this in just a few minutes. But notice Saul was afraid because God was so clearly with David and so clearly against him. Now that was that was objective fact, okay? God through Samuel had revoked Saul's dynasty. He had told Saul, I'm taking this back. And then David had been anointed already to be king in his place. But it's unclear as you read this material how much of this Saul is aware of. So in verse 12, also what's being described here is not just the objective fact, but also Saul's subjective feelings. God being so obviously for David. he looked, You know, everything David did succeeded. When Saul cowered, You know, from Goliath, David defeated him. When all the things, you know, David went out and he was successful in all the military campaigns he led. The people loved him and and he flew through the ranks of the army and Saul saw all of this and he saw God being so obviously for David and for whatever reason, his fear, when he saw God being so obviously for David, it made him feel like God must obviously be against him. You see? And what envy can do is it can turn a relationship into a rivalry because it is, again, the blossom of pride. And pride is competitive. It takes no pleasure in having something, only in having more than somebody else. And so that song the women sang, it honored Saul, but it honored David more, and that was the trouble. So the sin underneath the sin of envy is believing that God's love is doled out only to the deserving, to the winners, not the failures, that the kingdom is meritocracy, not grace. And so if somebody is winning like David was, then God must be for them. And if they are winning, then because it's a zero-sum game, if they are winning, then that must mean that I am losing. And if I'm losing, then obviously that means they're winning, I'm losing. That means that God is for them, he's against me. Do you see how it works? And this is the rationale. And it leaves us to where we can live afraid of other people's gifts and expertise. Because of what it says about us, what it says about me, and how I fail to stack up against their success, and how unworthy of love that leaves me. These are deep waters, and it probably deserves its own treatment. And I hate that I've got to say we've got to keep moving on. But if you are prone to weep when others are rejoicing, because it's not You, it's them, or if you are secretly rejoicing when they are weeping because somehow that lessens the pain you feel, be very, here's what I would say to you, be very, very careful. That is the cause of great, great evil. Think of the evil queen in Snow White. Jealous of Snow's youth and beauty, or Salieri's murderous hatred because... Mozart's genius came so easy, and his was so hard-wrought. And the way he became murderous in his hate, hatred, hatred towards him. Or Jan Brady saying, "Marsha, Marsha, Marsha." <laughs> you know. Don't, don't allow your fear about your own inadequacies. Don't allow your unbelief to cause you to begin to eye the people in your life and to begin to interpret their actions negatively and then even try to undermine them and bring them down because that's the making of an enemy. Second, we see not only the making of an enemy in Saul's jealousy, but we see the unmaking of an enemy and what we find in David here and the coal-heaping love that he shows. Now, that's a phrase right out of Romans 12, which Jamie read a little while ago. It says it's worth going back to again. You can turn back there if you want to in your worship folder where Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, Repaying evil for evil, that's the most natural response to an enemy, isn't it? An eye for an eye. We typically do unto others as they have done unto us. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a sort of inverse sinful golden rule. We do unto others as they have done to us instead of doing unto them as we would have them do unto us. And this was David's counsel, or excuse me, the counsel from David's men in verse 4 of chapter 24. Can you imagine? They're hiding out in the back of the cave because Saul and 3,000 of the special forces in Israel are, are chasing after them. And all of a sudden, Saul providentially walked into the cave because he has to go to the bathroom. And they're hiding right there in the shadows. And the men say to David, look, look what's happening. Here's your chance. God has given him into your hands. But was it providence or was it temptation? It is often difficult to discern the difference. And that, again, is a really important thought for a completely different sermon, but it's worth pondering. And what we notice in the text is that David took one step in the direction of vengeance. He snuck up behind Saul, and he cut off the corner of his robe. It was a symbolic act. Saul's cloak was the mantle of his kingship, and so by cutting off that corner... With his sword, David was declaring his intentions to violence, to tear the kingdom away from Saul through rebellion and war. Now, what's remarkable, though, as you continue to read, is that immediately, as soon as David does this on the advice of his men, and by the way, it is often be careful of friends who support you in your enemy making of other people. Be careful of people, when you start talking bad about other people, rally around your talking bad about other people. Guess what? They're probably talking to other people about you the same way. Be careful. David took one step in the direction of vengeance, and then immediately his heart struck him there, verse 5. David had a sensitive conscience, and he knew that what he had done was wrong. And he said, it says there, if you look at verse 7, it says he persuaded his men not to attack Saul. That's a, you circle that word because that word is not strong enough. It means that he tore them apart. That's literally what it means, that he rebuked them. He threw his weight around to protect Saul from their anger and their violence because, of course, he was hunting them too. They were not with their families because, you know, Saul was on the prowl. And David steps in and says, not only am I not going to harm him, but you're not going to harm him either. You've got to go through me to get to him. It's quite a turn and a reversal. Now we need to ask a few questions. Why? Why would David why would David act this way? Let's ask that, let's ask that question first, and the text answers it fairly clearly in verse six of chapter 24. It says there that David kind of aroused, and, and he began to say, "The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed." Now notice it was for God's sake. David was dealing with the Lord, not really even dealing with Saul. Saul had been anointed king by Samuel. He was God's choice. And for David, to put out your hand against God's anointed was to put out your hand against God himself. It was to defy God himself, to go against God. And so Gene Edwards has written a book about David's life entitled The Tale of Three Kings. It's really, really wonderful. And he imagines this scene. And he, he kind of imaginative, imaginatively asks, you know, the men asking David, why? Why, David? Why, why let Saul go? Why not in all of these years of misery right here, right now? And here's De- David's answer, and it's marvelous. He imagines David saying, it, it was God who made him king, God and not men, and better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge, not now, not ever. Dale Ralph Davis, he writes this, For David, it was one thing to have the promise of the kingdom, but how the kingdom should come to him was another matter. Yahweh's will must be achieved in Yahweh's way. The end that God had ordained must be reached by the means that God approved. And then he goes on to say, this kind of test is not confined to David. It comes up again and again to most, of all, to most all of Yahweh's servants. It is the temptation of the shortcut. How we yearn, he writes, for a shortcut around the arduous, wearying, time-consuming labor of sanctification. Now go back to Romans 12. And there, according to Paul, the trouble with repaying evil with evil is that it's almost impossible to not be overcome by the evil in the process. The evil that someone is doing to you, when you you harbor it, when you allow it to come, it passes into you. And if you repay evil with evil, what's happening is you're, you're taking that evil and absorbing it, and then it's coming back out of you as evil. And as you do this, you're just perpetuating and even increasing the evil. You multiply their sin in the way that you sinfully respond to it. Instead, Paul commands that we must find the strength to somehow absorb that intention from other people and then to overcome it with good back towards them. You beat sin not with vengeance but with forgiveness hello yeah i mean that's what it teaches there you beat sin their sin and your sin with forgiveness if you have an enemy your job is to dispense kindness not justice because kindness is what changes people romans 2 4 so why david understands this he has a great spiritual intuition here okay but let's also talk about what What exactly, what exactly, you know, this, how this takes shape? And Paul Miller is extremely helpful here as well, too, because basing his advice off of Romans 12, he says this, he says, if you have, well, if you have an enemy, that is when somebody in your life begins to interpret everything that you're doing through a negative grid, what you should do is you should fall back to taking care of their physical needs. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. If they're in the hospital, you visit them. You pray for them. You bless them. You find ways to serve them. If you have an enemy, if, 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 if somebody's interpreting everything you do negatively, then you love them by maintaining a soft heart towards them and wanting good for them and incarnating with them and meeting their practical needs without words. That last part's important. More acts of service, more practical love, Fewer words because they will continue to misinterpret what you say. Remember, that's the problem. They're misinterpreting everything you're saying. So if you just say more, what are you doing? You're just giving them more opportunities to misinterpret what you say. They will misinterpret and continue to misinterpret until they are disarmed by your practical love. Now, I'll tell you, this was a major parenting strategy for us, with teenagers in particular. If I sensed uh, my kids becoming hard-hearted toward Ashley or I, because we're parenting them nonstop, right? It's one lecture after another. It's just one thing after another, you would, and then you begin to realize they're not really listening to me. Actually, this is counterproductive. And so then what you start to do is then you start to change strategies. You just start serving them. You do their chores, or you buy them something they've been wanting, or you check them out of school and just have lunch with them. And win their heart back to your heart so that then you can begin the parenting again the way you were before. You see? And that's what David's doing. David is falling back to the practical love of this man who's become his enemy. And look what happened. This is what I want you to see. Look what happened. David refused vengeance, he also refused avoidance. He showed kindness, but then he took the opportunity to speak the truth in love to Saul, framing his words with both respect and affection. So look there in chapter 24, verse 8. He says, my lord, the king. And then in verse 11, he calls Saul, my father. But notice he's not avoiding the issue. He's speaking hard truth. He quotes a proverb in verse 13 directly to Saul. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. I mean, he's saying, Saul, you're a really wicked person. Like, what you're doing is wrong. And he wanted, because he wanted Saul to see he was trying to wake Saul up to the, just the, the falseness of the narrative he's living by. And so in verse 11, notice how many times the word see comes. See, my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and you may see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands, and I have not sinned against you. See, David's saying, I'm not the one at fault here. You are. That's his message. And he's trying to break through Saul's enemy mindset, and it worked. For the moment, it worked. It worked. Saul softened. He expressed remorse. He saw. He admitted the truth and even acknowledged that David would be king after him, verse 20. This is... What Paul means by heaping coals on the head of an enemy in Romans 12 20 when somebody sins against you because they are made in God's image and because they have a conscience they know that they're wrong somewhere down inside they know they're wrong but because they're sinful what happens is, is they immediately begin to look for a justification to kind of counteract that wrongness they feel so they double down on their moral superiority they convince themselves that they are good and that you are bad because that justifies their enemy stance towards you But when you respond to their unkindness with kindness, see, when you repay their evil with good, not only in the way you engage them, but even in your own heart, then it begins to challenge their assumptions, leaving them to ponder, hmm, maybe, maybe they're not the problem. Maybe, maybe I'm the problem. See, if you respond to evil with evil, you confirm the suspicions of your enemy, And you incite more evil, but if you respond to evil with goodness and kindness, it highlights their evil. And so Saul says, verse 17, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. See, that is the unmaking of an enemy through coal-heaping love. David refused vengeance. He also refused avoidance. And so we need to finish by just asking one last question. Well, how? How in the world? Where did that come from in David? How was David able to do this? That's the last question. How do you develop the strength and the moral capacity to love an on-again, off-again enemy? And the answer is that you have to know the enemy-loving God. And so let's finish by talking about the remaking of God's enemies because the the text forces us to deal with God. It was Saul's failure. It was David's greatness. Saul's failure was a failure to, to frame his life in light of God David's greatness was his ability to frame all of life in light of God, okay? And it's unclear how much Saul knew, but he knew enough to identify David as a rival, but but David actually wasn't the one taking the throne from Saul. It wasn't David's idea. David was just watching the sheep, right? He had no designs on ever being what he ultimately became. It was God's initiative from the very beginning. David wasn't the one taking the throne from Saul. God was. Before David was even introduced in the story, God, through Samuel, told Saul that there would be no dynasty. And yet Saul took all of his anger and fear and resentment about what God was doing in his life, and he channeled it towards David, who he claimed as his enemy. See, this is the interesting thing with envy. When you find yourself getting angry because someone has something that you want and you don't, it's easy to direct your disappointment and your resentment and your frustration with yourself at the person and to villainize them and to begin to root against them when in reality you're really just upset with how you're being treated by God (laughs) or you're just upset with your own reactions and response and that's the real issue see the root of envy is something like it's not fair i'm not getting what i deserve they don't deserve that happiness I do now if you dig down into that we're again we're getting into deep waters okay but if you dig down into that that's just moralism I'm a good person God owes me how dare he give what I so clearly deserve to somebody else it's a cosmic injustice and envious people tend to be injustice collectors it's just not fair But when you stop for a minute and take that statement and put it up against what the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that everything is a gift, that no one gets what they deserve, that it's grace for everybody. And it just doesn't stand up. But see, gratitude, which is the opposite of envy, eludes us when, like Saul, we refuse to deal with God. David, on the other hand, lived from his theology. Read the Psalms, and it was a secret. It's how he had the strength to repay Saul's evil with with good and not evil. And what's great about this text is how clearly this comes out. David makes two statements. The first in verse 12 of chapter 24. Look there again. He says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then again in verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it. Now his words are very close to what Paul says. Again, in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, what what makes having an enemy so hard is when they treat you the way they do, it's just so unfair. It's cosmic injustice. At least that's the way David thinks about Saul's behavior. He believed, though, That there would come a day when God would judge between the two of them. And we believe that too, by the way. We will confess it in just a minute when we recite the Apostles' Creed. That when Jesus comes again, we will all stand before God to be judged. And every wrong will be made right. And every injustice will be made up for. And every grief will be heard. And the sentence will come down. See, David knew that God was going to take care of him. So he didn't have to take care of himself. David knew that God would avenge him and therefore he could refuse to take vengeance, to repay evil for evil and be overcome by it, but instead to overcome evil with good. Because when you seek revenge, here's what the Bible is teaching us. When, when you seek revenge, you are taking the place of judge, which is to take the place of God. And that is a great, that is pride, that is sin. Vengeance is God's work, Paul says, not ours, because we're sinners, Now, God is not. Only God is holy. Only God is wise. Only God is just. Only he is qualified to judge. We are biased towards ourselves. We're selfish. It's almost impossible for us to feel outrage and not be made more selfish by it. It's almost impossible for us in our fallenness to feel outrage and to be loving, holy loving at the same time without it becoming super imbalanced. But not God. He's never not just and he's never not loving. And that's why his justice is always better than yours or mine. There is wrath. There is justice. But it just doesn't come from you. That's not your job. And, and you, can, you can live in that place because you know nobody gets away with anything. That's what, what, nobody gets away with anything. It will all come to light. God will see it right. He will repay. And if you know that, like David, then you don't feel all the weight of making all the wrongs right in the world. You're not the one that has to go about just making sure everybody's, that's wrong is repaid. With your justice, you can leave it to God. Now what's the takeaway? See, I, oh, I'm just so dissatisfied with the time being up but it is there's so much good stuff here but here's what i want you to say there's uh, a whole nother level to this as we think about what our takeaway would be we of all people should trust god to dispense his justice <laughs> because of the way that he has shown mercy to us we of all people should find the capacity in our hearts to love our enemies because of the love that God has shown to us when we were his enemies. In Romans 5, Paul has this amazing statement. He says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and I while we were still sinners. In other words, God didn't say, you guys get your act together, and then there's this thing, grace, that will come into your life. God loves us the very best when we are at our very worst, while we were still sinners. It even says, while we were still his enemies. This is how God loves his enemies. That Jesus Christ did not come into the world to die for you because you were his friend, you were his enemy and he came and he laid down his life to make you his friend. When you hated him, he loved you. When you and your heart were so set against him that you interpret everything he did and said with a negative grid, he still moved towards you in love. And if you source your life and if you source your love In his love for you, then you can love others the same way. But the trick is to relate to others like David did here. David related to Saul on the basis of God's treatment of him, not on the basis of Saul's treatment of him. You see that? And if you can learn to relate to others on the basis of how God has treated you and not the way the other person is treating you, then that's the trick because God's love for you is constant. So your love can be constant, too, even with those who you might call an on-again, off-again enemy. You love with God's love. You love from God's love. That's the takeaway. Love with God's love. Love from God's love. Because his love for you is the power for you to love the way you see David loving his enemy Saul here. There's a, an old hymn that says this, and we'll just close with these words. Jesus... Source of our salvation, may we now thy nature know. Then more bowels of compassion we to thy dear saints shall show. May the grace that thou hast imparted in relieving our complaints make us kind and tender hearted, even to the worst of the saints. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, as we prepare to come to this table now, where we celebrate yet again the grace that you have shown to us in Jesus, your enemy loving sacrifice on the cross, would we give ourselves to that great work of redemption so that we might find in ourselves this increasing capacity to love as you have loved, to take up our own cross and follow after you, to lay down our own life, not taking vengeance, but leaving vengeance to you because of the great mercy that you've shown to us in Jesus. We, who were your enemies and deserved death for our sins, have been made friends, shown mercy and grace, and then given the spirit that we might be remade in the very image of Jesus. So would you come And continue to do that work among us, your people. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as God sends us now, this word of benediction is the promise that we just sang. That there is more mercy in him. As you go about this week, there is more mercy. There's more capacity for mercy in him than there is capacity in you to mess things up. Okay? It's the promise that he meets every sin, every failure, every struggle with his mercy. So receive this word of benediction and go to love even even those that are enemies. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.